Thanks, Bruce. That was great. Brings it to life when we read it like that. Thank you so much for, for doing that. I know churches can be an awkward place to be sometimes. I don't know if you've ever felt that. You think, oh, I don't know if I quite fit in. or I don't. So here's what we're going to do. I think we should have a dress-up week for church. Dress-up parties seem to bring everybody out of their shell, don't they? Have you noticed that? You have a dress-up party. Everybody hates dress-up parties until they get to the dress-up party and then all of a sudden they feel okay about themselves because everybody else is looking just as silly as them. So I think we should have one. I've already got my costume sorted out. Here it is on the screen. You can see my costume. That's, that's what I'm going to be wearing. What are you going to be wearing? I don't know what you're going to be wearing. I like doing dress-ups, actually. That makes me... Uh, well, feel really happy. Here's another one that uh, we, we dressed up as on a particular occasion. That's Kel and I. That's a while ago. That's Balin, actually, who's uh, turning 16 tomorrow. Uh, so he's very little. That was quite a long time ago. But if you zoom in a little bit closer, I think you can read his mind. He's here saying, why on earth have I been stuck with this father for the next 16 years? Look at the look on his face. It's just disdain. What are you doing, my dad? Um, I think it would be good to, to dress up. But there is a difference, isn't there, between a dress-up and a disguise. Now, obviously, a disguise almost always involves uh, one of those bowler hats, a moustache, and a tweed jacket. Uh, But uh, I don't know how that's much of a disguise. But often the difference between a disguise and a dress-up is the intent with which you wear them. A disguise is always designed to pull the wool, literally, over somebody's eyes. Today, we dive back into our dysfunctional family. The dysfunctional family we see that would be called the nation of Israel. And we'll see today that there is blessing in disguise. We're going to look at a little tiny bit of chapter 26 and then chapter 27. Uh, You can ask a question later on, slido.com. The hashtag is HBSP to ask a question. I'll answer a couple of those at the end. Let me pray and we'll have a look together at Genesis 26 and 27. Heavenly Father, be with us this morning. Help us to understand your word and to put it into practice. Help us to see you in the midst of these uh, interesting chapters uh, with strange people. We ask, please, that you'd help us to see ourselves in the midst of this so that we might see how we should live and how you call us to change as a result. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I love to watch the WWE wrestling. That's one of my favourite things, especially on a Sunday night. I sit at home and watch the wrestling and I love it. But there's a few people that have been in the, in the wrestling. Dwayne Johnson and Dave Batista. These guys have become uh, very well-known actors in various different movies around the world. But the problem is for me, when I watch them in movies, I cannot stop watching them as wrestlers. That's all they are to me. In fact, I miss the whole point of the movie uh, because I'm expecting them to pull off some massive elbow drop from the top rope or some crazy thing in the middle of a movie. I miss the plot because all I can see is the characters that I know so well. It's easy for us as we dive into chapter 27 of the book of Genesis today to miss what God is doing in this chapter because all we can see are the big characters. But today we want to see God. We want to see what God is doing and we want to see that God is faithful to the promises that he has made. Which takes us back to chapter 26. Chapter 26 of the book of Genesis 
shows us that God has made the very same promises to Isaac as he made to Abraham. You might remember Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3 are where God makes his landmark promises to his people of land and offspring and blessing, the lob promises. And in chapter 26 verses 4 and 5, Isaac is given those promises again, almost word for word. The promises that were to your father Abraham will also be to you, Isaac. And then, amazingly, in chapter 26, verses 6 to 11, Isaac does almost identically what his father Abraham had done. He, in in the midst of trouble, tries to uh, persuade people that his wife, Rebecca, is actually his sister so that they won't get killed this is exactly what his father did an act of stupidity not trusting god but trusting himself nevertheless the rest of chapter 26 shows us that even in the midst of his stupidity isaac is blessed by god look at chapter 26 verse 12 isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold the lord blessed him And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And the rest of the chapter shows us what that wealth looks like, with particularly the digging of well after well after well. However, when we get to the beginning of chapter 27, Isaac is now blind. He's frail. And though he will live for a good many years after this chapter... He decides at this moment, when blind and feeling frail, to take care of his affairs. He decides that he will bestow a blessing upon his son Esau, his firstborn son. Now we might say, well, can anyone declare a blessing on someone else? Well, perhaps. We might call it something different today. We might call it a will, a last will and testament, some uh, binding agreement from one party or one generation to another. And so Isaac, with his eyesight diminished, turns to bless his son Esau. And as Bruce so wonderfully described about a cross between Bold and the Beautiful and MasterChef, we come to chapter 27 where there are four scenes. Four scenes about four people and four mistakes that these four people make. Let's look at each one in turn. Verses 1 to 4. Scene number 1. Isaac tries to control God. We saw last week Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys. Esau, who was born first, a hairy boy, a hairy man, who was an outdoory type, a hunter. And then Jacob, who was smooth of skin and seemed to be more of a homebody. But... Not only were they different, but their parents loved one more than the other. Isaac loved Esau because he brought him food. And Rebekah loved Jacob. And so in his old age, Isaac calls Esau to himself and says, Bring me some of that food that I absolutely love. And when you do, I'll give you my blessing. Now it's interesting, isn't it? He could just give him the blessing. Why does he have to bother with the food? Well, like father, like son. Both of them are motivated by their stomachs. Isaac, and as we saw last week, by a bowl of soup, Esau as well. 
Isaac could easily give the, uh, the blessing if he wants to, but instead he's driven by his impulses and wants the food. Now, what's the big problem with all of this? Isaac wants to give the blessing. Isaac's in a position to give the blessing and he can give it to whomever he wishes. That's how our world works, doesn't it? If we wish to give in our will this much to this person and this much to this person and it's disproportionate, so on and so on, then so be it. Isaac can do what he wants. But see, we're missing something if we think Isaac can do what he wants. Isaac is actually trying to control God. I don't know if you remember last week's passage in Genesis chapter 25. God himself said, with both children still in the womb, that the older would serve the younger. Reversing the natural way that God had set up the world. This occasion, Jacob, the younger child, would be the ruler and master over the older child, Esau. Now, it would appear here that Isaac either did not know that, which seems strange, or or presumed to ignore that information. Not only that, we know from chapter 25 that Esau sold his birthright in chapter 25 for a bowl of lentil soup. No doubt his father Isaac knew about this as well. But in an act of trying to control or bind God, he said, I know the prophecy about Esau and I know that he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, but I'm going to control God and in effect tell him what he must do by blessing my favourite son Esau. Verses 1 to 4, Isaac tries to control God, to control the outcome. To make God obliged to do the thing that he wants to do. It's easy for us to do the same thing, just subtly, isn't it, in our own lives. To try and bind God in a way that his word doesn't allow him to be bound. To say something of God, which is not actually true of what he is doing in this world. Let me give you an example. I have sat across the table with a good many people who have said something along the lines of this. I have been a good Christian person. I've done right by God. Why is he making me go through this situation? I've been a good Christian. I've been right by God. Why is he making me go through this situation? But you see, that's to bind God in a way that he hasn't promised. It's not wrong to ask the question of why we're going through hard times. That's perfectly right and reasonable. But it's wrong to hold God to something that he never promised. See, God never promised that if we serve him or if we live a good Christian life, that that would pay off with wonderful things, with comfort, with security, with a lack of illness or sickness or whatever the situation may be. That's simply not what God promised. But we can, in our moments of weakness, try to bind God and hold him to a standard that he's never never held himself to. And this is what Isaac here tries to do. But of course, God being God, this is not a very smart plan anyway, and it tends not to work when you try to go against the plan and will of God. Which takes us to scene two. Scene two is about Rebecca and unbelief. I don't know if you're much of a a camping person, uh, but I can tell you something whether you're a camping person or not. There are no secrets in tents. No secrets in tents. None. 
You say something in a tent, it gets heard by everyone, and it would appear that's the case here, starting at verse 5. Rebecca overhears what had taken place between Isaac and Esau. She doesn't want Esau to be blessed because, remember, she's got a favourite son herself, Jacob. Indeed, in verses 5 and 6, it looks like the writer here is trying to tell us that they have favourites as well. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son, Esau. Now, why wouldn't the writer write their son, Esau? Because he's trying to tell us uh, that Isaac had a favourite. But it goes on, verse 6. Rebecca said to her son, Jacob. They had favourites here. His and hers children. Well, Rebecca, with her favourite, she hatches a plan to get Jacob blessed. Here's the plan. Rebecca's going to make exactly the same food that Isaac loves. Now, you, don't, you just wonder, don't you, in that sort of situation. If Rebecca's got a little bit of nose out of joint about this. She wants, es uh, sorry, Isaac wants Esau to go out and make the food. But Rebecca's thinking to herself, I know the food he loves. I can make it myself faster and just as delicious as him. Maybe, maybe that's what she's thinking at the time. Nevertheless, she takes Jacob and dresses him like Esau, putting goat hair on his arms and on his neck so that he will appear hairy as well. And Jacob, as we read these verses, says, I'm not so sure about this plan. Can we really get away with this? I'm not confident. Verse 12, perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. But Rebecca, his mother, said to him, I'm confident. Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go and bring them to me. And so the disguise starts to take shape. Jacob dresses in Esau's clothes. Jacob's dressed with the hair on the hands and the neck. The food is prepared. It's in his hands and he's standing at the edge of the tent ready to go in. But before we go any further... Let's ask ourselves once again the question in scene number two, what's going on here? You see, Isaac perhaps was ignorant of God's plans for his children. Although that would seem highly unlikely from what we read in chapter 25, but Rebecca most certainly does know about God's plans for her sons. She knows that the older will serve the younger. She knows that the birthright was sold by Esau to Jacob. So why? Why does she have to go and take matters into her own hands? Why does she not just simply trust God's words that said this would be the case? Jacob will receive the blessing anyway. Why do I need to go through all of this? She turns out to be a rather smarmy sort of character, doesn't she? Well, it happens with us too. Rather than trust God at his word, we ourselves can walk into unbelief like Rebecca. I wonder if you've ever questioned God's word in that way and said to yourself, I just don't know if God is really for me. I know God said he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I know all of these verses about the presence of God with me by his spirit because of what Jesus has done. I know that my forgiveness is full and complete in Jesus because his death on the cross. But 
I just don't know if I can believe him. Or if we think to ourselves, there's a burden on my shoulders in my life. And I know God says to me, he is my rock and my refuge. And I can find that that burden will be taken away by him. Or at least that he'll walk with me through that burden. But instead I try to fix the problem by myself. These are all acts of unbelief and there are a great many more. Rebecca knew the word of God. And instead chose to take matters into her own hands in an act of unbelief. Well, how did the plan go down? Well, that's scene number three. Jacob is standing at the edge of the tent, ready to go in with the food in hand and the disguise on. Can he receive the blessing in disguise? Well, as he heads into his father who can't see him, the charade starts to act out. And it's not without its problems. Have a look with me at verse 20. Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Good question. You're here really quickly. I didn't expect you so soon. Disturbingly, Jacob brings God into the lie in a blasphemous way. Look at what he says. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now, God is an accomplice in his lie, apparently. Well, that's not the only problem. Verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Jacob went to Isaac, his father who felt him and said to him, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Will this charade work? Verse 24, we see it once again. Are you really Esau? He answered, I am. Imagine the tension. He's in the Middle East. He's in a tent. There's beads of sweat coming down his face. Is this really going to work? Or am I going to end up with a curse put on me? And you might have noticed, as Bruce read so well for us, that all of the senses of Isaac are engaged. He hears the voice, and though he thinks it's Esau, he's will, uh, sorry, though he thinks it's Jacob, he's willing to trust that it's Esau. His touch is there as he touches the hairy neck and hands uh, of Jacob. His taste is engaged as he tastes the tasty food that is exactly like he knows it should be. And then he brings his son close and it smells because of the clothes like Esau. And so as a result, the blessing is given to Jacob. See the second half of verse 27. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May the Lord give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's a wonderful blessing. You're going to get everything is the basic gist of this. You're going to get the promises of God as the end of verse 29 makes clear, the blessings and the curses. But you're also going to get all of the gifts of the earth that God had blessed Isaac with back in chapter 26. And yet all of it came by deception. Now again, why would Jacob go out of his way to do such a thing? God had already said he would receive these blessings. Plus, he had shored up the deal by buying the birthright for a bowl of lentil soup off his brother in Genesis chapter 25. There was nothing he needed to do to receive these things. They were guaranteed. And yet, 
Jacob decided that he should take matters into his own hands and try to seek the blessings that God could only give through his own efforts and his own hands. Again, it's easy for us to do a similar thing, isn't it? To grasp after the blessings of this life. The Psalms often go into detail, don't they, and say, why is it that the righteous person seems to have nothing and the wicked person seems to have everything? And we ourselves sometimes feel like that. And we want to start grasping after the blessings of this world, but the blessings of this world are things that only God can provide us. But we feel as though that we can grasp them in our own strength and grasp after the blessings that only God can give. Well, fourthly and finally, the cry of Esau, scene number four. Verse 31 tells us that almost as soon as Jacob leaves, Esau arrives. He says, righto, Dad, time to get up. I've got a great feed for you. I've been working on this for ages. And then the pennies start to drop. They realise what's going on. And look at the response. Verse 33, Isaac trembled very violently. And in verse 34, Esau heard the words of his father and cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He says to his dad, that brother of mine is a cheat. He's a deceiver, just like the name Jacob means. Jacob literally means in that Hebrew idiom, he grabs the heel, which is a word for cheat. Now it's true, isn't it? His brother is a cheat. An opportunist who takes advantage of other people. We saw that last week and now again this week. But Esau is missing one conveniently important piece of information. Esau is forgetting that he himself sold the birthright last week. In fact, the end of chapter 25 tells us very clearly, thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau conveniently leaves out this detail and blames his brother, of which is it's completely true, and his dad says to him, I love you, son, but there's nothing I can do about it. And as a result, he receives what might be described as a reverse blessing in verses 39 and 40. It's the exact opposite of what his brother got. And as a result, Edom, the nation that would descend from Esau, and Israel, the nation that would descend from Jacob, would be at war for many years, at enmity for a long time. And what this scene reminds us is it reminds us that God gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in this life to repent. They're called new days of the week. He gives this world around us new days of the week to repent time and time and time again. But in the end, after a long life that the majority of us receive, if we say no to God, then he will respect that decision and say, you will have none of me forever. Such are the consequences of the decisions that we make. Esau's consequences were quite clear. He sold his birthright And he couldn't get it back. Thankfully, in the mercy of God, the world around us has day after day after day after day to make that decision to return to Christ. But in the end, everybody will have to to abide by the decision they made. Receive the consequences of that decision. Where the outcome is clear. A life away from God in hell rather than in heaven. The decisions we make have their consequences. And so we come to the end of a pretty depressing chapter. Four scenes, 
four shockers. There's no winners here. Isaac is deceived. Rebecca, in the end, loses her favourite son who is sent away because Esau might kill him and she never, ever, ever sees him again. Esau is just confirmed in the poor decision that he made last week and Jacob, though he seems like a winner, is not a very desirable character, I'm sure you'd agree. And this one chapter is referred to in the New Testament in a strange way in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 20. Look at what it says, you'll see it on the screen. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now you might say, it doesn't look like much of a faithful person. Isaac looks terrible right the way through this event. How is it that he had faith? Well, come with me just to the end of verse 33. The end of verse 33. After Isaac had trembled very violently and said, Who was it that brought the game to me? And I've blessed him. There is a small glimmer of faith for him at the end of verse 33 when he says, Yes, he shall be blessed. He knows now what he should have known all along, that God would bless Jacob as he promised to do. This is a moment of faith. I will see that what God is doing is true. And that's what we can see in this passage. As we start to look more closely, we see God more clearly in this passage. While all of the characters of this passage are full of self-interest and sin, God himself is solid. Not rejecting his promises, even though if it was up to me, I'd say about all four of these characters, you guys are idiots, out you go, let's give the promises to a new group of people. But God doesn't do that. Which is greatly encouraging for us, isn't it? Because we too are the people of God, thanks to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We are what we were described last week in Hebrews, uh, sorry, in, in Romans chapter 9, as the true and new Israel. We are the ones who have received the promises of God. And yet we're dysfunctional too. We're hypocritical too. We're, we're sinful people too. And though we belong to the spiritual bloodline of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob, God, as he was faithful to this family through the promises that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and now to Jacob, will be faithful to the promises given to us as well. Your sin cannot thwart the will or promises of God. And that is great news because God is more committed to his promises than anything else. Look at these verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But look at this last verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Sometimes we get stuck in the sin of trying to control God or of just simple unbelief or trying to steal the blessings of, of this world that only God himself can provide, trying to do it apart from God. But though we must stop all of these things and not live like Isaac and Rebecca and Esau and Jacob, we also need to remember that because God has given us his very great promises, he cannot deny himself. And he will hold fast to his promises and complete in us 
what he started in the Lord Jesus and when we were converted and turned to him. So be encouraged. When your life seems dysfunctional, hypocritical and full of sin, you're in good company. But God is always true to his promises. I'm going to pause just for 30, 60 seconds or so for a question you might like to ask at Slido. I might answer one or two today and then uh, we will sing our final song. Let's take a moment just to reflect. Let's have a look at just a couple of questions that are here. Someone's made a comment, how amazing is our God to be faithful? That's true, faithful to his promises. That's the key thing and and, uh, worth us remembering as well. Uh, David said, did Rebecca take things into her own hands or did God use Rebecca to fulfill his will? Did she have a choice? Yes, yes and and yes. So as we saw last week, there's these two things. God is a God of election. We saw that last week in Genesis chapter 25. But standing right next to it is this idea that Esau sold his birthright uh, legitimately for a bowl of, of lentil soup. And both of those things stand by side by side. Um, Esau can't say, well, God made me do it. There's nothing in the Bible that allows that to happen. Uh, and yet God is an electing God at the same time. So did God use what Rebecca did? Yes. Is Rebecca still responsible for what she did? Yes. Uh, and and uh, did she have a choice? Yes, she did. The, uh, the other thing that's related to this is what we see at the cross of, of Jesus. So the people that uh, delivered Jesus up to be crucified, did they have a choice in what they did? Most certainly they did. Uh, as Peter says in the book of Acts, you handed him over to be crucified, and yet we know it was the plan of God to have his son killed on the cross as well. And so this is right throughout the Bible, this sort of way of thinking. Um, We don't like it because it's sort of like 100% plus 100% equals 100% and it doesn't make sense, but it's it's good theology, um, but it just doesn't make sense mathematically. Uh, Michael has said, does scripture mention God punishing Jacob for deceiving his father Isaac? Uh, Not that I can remember off the top of my head. The thing I would say about that here um, is that clearly... uh, the writer, whoever wrote this particular section of scripture, humanly speaking, uh, is clearly not saying he's a good guy. He's clearly a bad guy in, in the story. He just happens to be the one who carries the promises of God. And, and that's the amazing thing. It's, uh, normally we think that the people that have the promises of God must be the good guys and everyone else is the bad guy. But everybody's the bad guy and some people just have the promises of God. And that's still the same today. We're all bad guys. The whole world's bad guys. But we happen to have the promises of God. And that is of great praise to God uh, on the way through. 
As for God punishing Jacob, uh, it, clearly it's an act of sin. His sin would have been punished just as much as ours at the cross of Jesus as well. And that's uh, worth us remembering. We're going to sing our final song. It's Consider Christ.